0: Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty Spotlight Interviews. I'm Katie Hyson, Director of Thought Leadership. Each week, these interviews provide you with insight from a different perspective of the Business Fights Poverty network, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are working on some of the world's biggest social challenges. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Marcus Druin. Marcus is part strategic advisor, part executive coach, helping businesses experiment with more fluid ways of working, alternative leadership models, and capability building. Originating in Germany, Marcus spent time in Malaysia and Japan before moving to the UK, where he has been based ever since. He earned his stripes as business change lead in-house at T-Mobile and then executive coach at Telefonica O2. He's helped the likes of Microsoft, Energy, Lidl, and KPMG, amongst others. Marcus says, I have one strong point of view. It is that capitalism is the best civilised form to organise society and in the urgent need of adaptation. Marcus Duran, welcome. Well, thank you, Katie. Thanks for
1: having me on the podcast.
0: So firstly, I wonder if you'd like to build on that last statement.
1: Yes. So I've worked with everyone from corporate executives, firefighters, managers in local authorities, NGOs social enterprises and B Corporations. And what it boils down to that my favorite operating model, I would say, is a B Corp or social enterprise. But in 2019, these are still far and few in between, whereas we have hundreds, thousands of big corporations that are basically operating on one doctrine, and that is to maximize shareholder value. And that gets me to, these are not bad people. I've actually known a lot of these and I work with them and I even call some of them my friends. They just operate with bad incentives. And the bad incentives leads to this crazy um, masquerading of annual budgeting, annual forecasting, quarterly forecasting, quarterly results hitting. And I recently talked to an ex-chief marketing officer of a big, well-known internet company. And he literally told me, he said, Marcus, you got to understand this. This is a game that's rigged and some people understand the rules and some people don't. So you put your finger in the air, you say this is the budget, and then you're going to move mountains to make it happen. And you know this and your people know this and your peer knows this and even your boss might know this. Everything is rigged. Everything is just fake, if you like. Nothing is based on real experiential data. And all of these people do this because the board has promised certain amount of money to the shareholders no matter what happens and that's why it's in desperate need of adaptation the reason why i still think it's the best form of organizing a society is because i've seen it in the eyes of entrepreneurs entrepreneurs corporate executives young talent when you give people space and resources to come up with new ideas and that's what gets us into innovation and i think when it comes to innovation anything in the private sector out and outperforms most organisational forms in public sectors or NGOs. That's at least my experience that I've made in the last 20 years.
0: So what's really driven you to become a kind of strategic advisor and executive
1: coach? Well, Katie, it all started with a bad boss. He was a really bad bully. He created a toxic environment. And I actually found out that he's also a fraudster. So I became a whistleblower and saw him out of the job. Now, I did realize that that's not a career strategy necessarily to keep doing this. So I got myself an apprenticeship in what at the time was a fascinating area, which was digital publishing. So I experienced the whole disruption that that sort of technology brings to people. And eventually, I ended up on the wrong side of technical skills myself because I was seconded into a subsidiary, which was one of the first internet agencies in Germany. And I was really, really good with something that was called computer-based training, CBT. And I loved that already. So some of the you know, signposting was there for, the, for my future career. But guess what, Katie? I didn't think the internet would take off. And so I put all my eggs in this CBT basket while the internet took off. And whilst I was employee number four... We scaled up to 40, and I basically found myself with nowhere to go. I had no managerial skills, and as I said, I had the wrong technical skills. So I did go to business school and with a specific intent to really understand how organizations evolve and how decisions are being made. And um, I wrote my thesis on corporate lifecycle stages, which is quite fascinating. I might dwell on that later a bit. Because you realize that most organizations, if they are startup or scale-up or a big corporate, They actually follow a script There's quite predictable problems that they're running into. So by the time I was 30, I had a really, really good understanding of organizational effectiveness based on some of these uh, change programs you mentioned earlier. But the key thing was I had no idea about personal effectiveness and especially about my own, let's say, emotional intelligence. and, and, And specifically, I didn't really know what empathy was. or I didn't really know how to regulate my own emotions. So it was definitely time for a career change. And I switched from the hard side of looking at change, processes, structures, governance, to the soft side, which is people, politics, leadership development. And it turns out that the soft side is actually much, much harder. And today, nowadays, in my practice, I combine the two, the hard and the soft, the what and the how. That's how I got into it.
0: And fast forwarding, what do you see the trends are coming forward? looking ahead in in this space?
1: So I see three trends affecting, let's say, my area, which is organisational development. The first one is a widening gap between the external speeds of the market and the internal capacity for organisations to respond. Then the second one is, I see an emergence of networks inside organisations, you know, these structures that actually have now much more informal networks, they're much better connected, And that's where lots of different change agents almost like recruit themselves to join forces, become more allies. And the third trend that I see is there is an unstoppable rise of new ways of working, whether that's agile or distributed authority, more transparency and so forth.
0: And Marcus, through the lens of people change management or, or whatever term is right, I'm not the expert here, what do you think is holding back businesses from embedding social or environmental positive impact more deeply into businesses? I mean, that's, that's what we care about here at Business Fights Poverty. Um, but just wondered from your sort of professional opinion.
1: So my response to that question is really focused on the, on the big corporations because those are the companies I most work with and that's where I have a lot of expertise and so I'm, I'm not making a broad brush on, on any organisation here. So if you work in a corporate, as, as I mentioned, you actually have to operate under bad incentives, which is short-terminism to hit those quarterly results. Now, that very much defines the autopilot of the corporate immune system. Now, what do I mean by that? The autopilot is the hidden norms, the unwritten rules, the groupthink behavior. So, let me give you an example: whether bad news travels upwards or not, that's very much within the autopilot. And most people don't even see it. And the corporate immune system just imagine this as a control center with just one task and priority only to keep that system in check, in balance, in equilibrium. And that's what all systems do, whether it's a solar system, the human system, nervous system, or a corporate system. The systems really need and want that stability and that balance. So if you come from a social or environmental positive impact, anger, you very might like be seen as a potential risk, as a threat to this. And so the corporate immune system might even chuck you out like an antibody because you might challenge the status quo, the bonuses, the company costs, the lavish offices, the budget to hire people under you in hierarchy who do the actual work. Because a lot of the, a lot of the emerging trends that I see around purpose work and you know what the millennials really want is very much threatening the status quo of the people in power. One of the people previously on your podcast from the Cherry Blair Foundation, she very much said, like there's a lack of bravery and leadership amongst men. And I absolutely agree with that because it's almost shocking to admit, but the vast majority of leadership teams that I work with are white, male, middle class, heterosexual. And that very much defines that autopilot and immune system of many, many, many corporations in this world. So the key thing is. What I really want to say is like, I'm not judgmental. This links back to, you know, bad incentives. If that's what your governance model requires from you is that's what you do. Because let's just step back for a second what change actually is. Change is about learning, learning new things. And you only learn new things in what we call the limitless space. Limited as in the opposite of subliminal. So limited means it's conscious and it's a threshold it's literally between one specific stage and another and to illustrate that with an example from nature the caterpillar before it actually turns into this beautiful butterfly or there's a nymph in water that then becomes a fly like a mayfly or a dragonfly they actually have to go through this limited space or the almost like a ritual which is the cocoon and if you've ever seen a fly or a caterpillar fighting themselves out of that cocoon you know that that transformation is not particularly glamorous beautiful pretty it's just hard work and that's why people almost naturally resist change because it is not glamorous very often it's not the thing to put on your cv and shine you know if you look for another job because it's hard work very gritty and quite often quite unthankful so come back to your question that's from a leadership perspective One of the very strong forces that I notice what's holding companies back to to transform and become the best versions of themselves is actually that the leadership population has very little incentive to do this hard work of change.
0: And what can someone do to help themselves go through this liminal change, to to speed it up or to boost their success?
1: So there are a few principles around change. The first one is you can only change yourself. You can't change somebody else, let alone an organisation. The second principle is change only happens in the here and now. So this is not about talking, I want to change. It actually has to happen or it doesn't. And then it's all about being really mindful about what actually happened when you did. So the three things that you really need on a personal level if you want to change. You need to have a clear intention. This is what I now want to do differently and why. And then you need to have a bit of bravery. You need to actually go to your boss and say, nope. I'm not going to spend the next three days on writing a PowerPoint deck for explaining why the forecast is deviating from the budget. I'm just not going to do that because it's not really important in the larger scheme of things. So you need bravery for that. And then you need to really, really be mindful and observant how that lands on your boss, on your peers, on the system. And then probably you have to adapt and do it slightly differently next time. So change very much is you and, and you listeners. It's not the other people. Because once we change us, it inevitably catalyzes some subtle change in the other people around it. Because the way I see organizations in teams in general is it's all a bit codependent. It can be a bit like in a, in a relationship or in a marriage. It's like, you know, we blame other people and then we tell ourselves a story that we are right and they are wrong. And guess what? They do exactly the same. And so in order to step out of that, I can only be responsible for myself, take charge and say, I'm going to do this differently. And then I'm going to observe what's going to happen. And if I need, I adapt. So it's, it's basically a perpetual loop of, of iteration, experimentation, reflection. That's really what change is on a, on a neurological level. And you will find this very compelling if you follow the following experiment. Just fold your arms. And you listeners do that as well. Just fold your arms right now. And that probably feels quite nice, doesn't it? And if there's one hand that's basically on top of your arm and the other hand that's below your arm, and now just do the opposite way around, that probably feels a bit awkward and you. And that's exactly because there is no neural pathway in your brain for this specific way to fold your arms. Now, if you do this for 50 times, it almost becomes indistinguishable. And yeah, I just wanted to embellish that's what change is. It's learning and it starts with you
0: how do you then take change to the organization or even societal level
1: so it comes back to incentives and also governance what I've worked on in my earlier parts of my careers if you give you you can't actually change a culture directly but what you can do is you can change some people and that's one of the things that I find time and time again has a massive impact if there are people who really really don't want to support this change they're really against it Very much, so like working in the underground against the strategic agenda, is really important to get rid of one or two of them. And that's where most executives really, really struggle with because it's probably their buddies. So I know it sounds a bit harsh, but a very, very effective intervention to invoke change is to remove one person who has been the poster boy of being against the change because that's where the bell curve comes into effect. The people quite next to them on the bell curve, whether they're you know, against the change, they very quickly ask themselves the question, do I want to be next or do I want to be seen as being against this? So yeah, you can, you can work on the people side. You can also change your communication. And one of the things that I work with my clients on is stop pretending you're going to solve world hunger. Stop pretending you're going to be the most agile company on the planet. If you only want to become 10% better or even 10% less bad, that's a good goal to have. And it's more important to be authentic about it and believable and credible and then make those steps in the right direction in this limited space than to come with these amazing visions of what you want to achieve in the next five years' time. Because that's change on, a, on an organizational level cannot work anymore in the predict and control fashion, which served us very well in the 20th century when the world was a lot more static and stable, but in this world, which is so dynamic and with the exponentialism that that the digitization brings, the capacity for organizations to stay in this typical command and control mode just doesn't work anymore. So the biggest shift that's required, and that's the biggest challenge that I see amongst my clients, is to move away from the predict and control towards the sense and respond uh, way of working. And the companies that do that, they actually really show successful change programs.
0: One of the things that we talk about quite a lot within the, I guess, the sort of social and environmental impact space is about influencing up and out across our businesses. And I know that you've done a lot of work thinking about influencing stakeholders. I'd wonder if you could take us on a bit of a journey as to why you think that's so important and perhaps give us some examples of some of the work that you've done in that space.
1: Yeah, so if you're my age, mid 40s, you've been socialized usually in matrix organizations in big companies with these racing charts who's responsible, who's accountable, who needs to be consulted, and who needs to be informed. And do you know what, Katie? Before that, in the very, very early stages of my career, you just did the job, somebody signed it off, and then maybe once a quarter, if your project was big enough, your work was featured in corporate comms to brief other people. Now, today, you are actually responsible. You often have two bosses to claim accountability. So you need to consult a ton of people, ask for permission, get alignment with them, and inform every man in the dark about your weekly progress. So there's this, with with also with the digital tools, there's this real-time information flow in these informal communication channels across those informal networks. Like, have you heard? Have you heard what Katie has done last week in this workshop? And then, you know, I'll give you an example from my client's. They had this sort of like misalignment seemingly between one team and another team. It took him about a day of his time and focus and energy to basically get the cats back in the sack because that's what people just do in at the smoking pit, for instance. And so it's really, really important these days that you can manage horizontally, upwards and downwards, and also transversely because you might have somebody that is on on just a slightly higher rank than you, but in a completely different part of the business. And so I found that there are three things that really, really matter. It's almost like that makes 80% of someone's influencing job and influencing being defined as when you don't have formal authority, when you can't tell somebody what to do, when you have to get them behind you to wanting to follow you. The first one is edge, I call it. So why should anyone listen to you? What do you bring to the table? Why should somebody, why would somebody benefit from working with you? Will you make them look good? You know, that's what a lot of people will ask if you start working with them. And then the second thing is connection because we all need connection. It's a human innate need that we have. So in this complex world with so many different stakeholders around, the key skill is to learn how to get under someone's skin really, really fast. That's the key thing. you got to get to the level of having a personal relationship, but mostly you won't have oodles of time going for dinners, lunches, and all the rest of it. You need to almost get there in the first five minutes. And then it's all about intervention. So how do you intervene? What is the best choice for you right now in this moment? How do you create a pull for your quest? So a lot of people with the budget are a bit lukewarm in their lip service. Well, they give lip service. They're a bit lukewarm in their commitments to actually you know, get you, give you the budget that you need for your your social impact quest. So, And you don't get there by more pushing. So you have to really, really think about how do you co-create a situation where somebody in authority with budget almost thinks like, oh, I had this idea, let's just do this. And then they take the glory and you just know that you've just been a successful influencer and a really, really good change catalyst. So the whole thing about influencing requires to step back a bit from your ego and let other people be in the basking glory light and then within your circles and eventually amongst the people in power the big boys and big girls with the big money pots they will start to realize that you are the move and shaker behind the scenes and that's very much what influencing is it's not necessarily be on stage it's very much doing the job behind the scenes
0: and i'm curious marcus with with all of this kind of influence that you have and the ability to kind of go in and help businesses think about change and leaders think about how to be better leaders etc. What do you hope is the change that you'll make?
1: So my purpose is to continue to transform myself which has been a very long journey and to use this as an instrument combined with my coaching and consulting and facilitation skills to invoke this sense of courage and duty and responsibility in, in other people because we all have a gift. to give to to society. And it comes back to my my statement at the beginning. I think capitalism is in dire need for adaptation. And I have deliberately not chosen to work for NGOs or similar organizations. I've decided to go almost like into the den, into the shark tank and change the system from within. And I would say that specifically the work I do around Audacity which stands for Facilitating Audacious Change, is very much about getting people out of their out of their neocortex, out of their rational part of the brain, and really start connecting with what, what they're saying with their hearts and with their hands, and so that they can embody what they want to see change in the world, not just talking about it. There are enough talk shops in this world. In this world and I would say that the work that I do is really workshop type. It's you you got you got to roll up your sleeve and you got to experiment with what you say you want to do. And then it's my job as a sparring partner for change to hold you accountable and if needed, to put your feet in the fire if you start to escape and start telling yourself a comfortable story again.
0: So what would be your advice to others at this moment in time then, Marcus?
1: So there are three things that I think are really, really helpful and important. One is change the story. Second is find more allies. And the third is vote by your feet. Now let me expand on that quickly. So there's probably the reality that you in the social impact space are seen by others as a cost. The key thing is that you must not start believing this to yourself. So change the story starts in your own mind. If you wake up in the morning thinking that in future, what you do is so essential to the business, it's almost like a matter of survival, then you will start believing that story and you will start embodying that. If on the other hand, you wake up in the morning thinking like, yeah, it is probably quite costly to go to all of these conferences, and that's also what you're going to emanate and, and embody. So it comes back to what I said earlier. You can only change yourself and you start with changing the story in your own head. Now, what do I mean by find more allies? There's so many people that compete for the short attention span of CEOs. And in a nutshell, it's the people that want corporate renewal, whether it's the innovation managers, CSR leaders, the experts on purpose work, gender equality evangelists. Everyone in this space competes for the same limited airtime and attention span. And i got to be honest, all too often I see this this tribe of people who want renewal as being too siloed and not really joining forces, not really joining the dots and not really telling a story that shows a CEO or another executive how all these ideas actually shape up to the wider story. So I would say take a little bit back your personal agenda and see how you can collaborate with like-minded people who all really work on the same let say, bottleneck or, or, you know, if, if you like, people in politics, which goes back to the autopilot and, and the corporate immune system. Yeah, so find more allies. And last but not least, vote by your feet. So you see, I've come a bit on a journey. I've been on a bit on a journey in terms of like taking some of my cost of living out. So I, I basically cost about 30% less than I cost to live about, you know, five to eight years ago. And what that gives me is real freedom of choice to choose the clients that I want to work with, to choose whether I want to dial it up or dial it down. And so my advice to others is if you don't want to work in a corporate anymore, I mean, there's this letter, you know, Larry Fink's open letter to CEOs. And, you know, then I agree with Mark Goida who challenges it and it's just walking, you know, talking the talk, but not walking the walk. I agree with all of that. But the key thing is you can all make that choice. And, that's one of the things that I see more and more is that people just leave the corporate world and you know work for social enterprises or or other organizations that are more in line with their personal purpose. And so I would always advocate try everything that you have in your toolkit. You know, go the extra mile, but then also really know when to cut your losses and when you say, actually, I can't look in the mirror anymore. This is just purpose washing, greenwashing, whatever. And then vote with your feet and leave because at some point, if enough of you do that the corporate executives would pay attention to that.
0: Marcus Duran, thank you very much for your time today and for all of your advice and insights.
1: Thank you very much for giving me the space.
0: Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty.